Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Ladies and gentlemen, a quick introduction coming up first on the show. We have Stephen Bassett, Executive Director of the Paradigm Research Group, sponsor of the X Conference, and also he runs a political action committee, a PAC, dedicated to inducing disclosure coming up on the Paracast. And later on the show, Brad Steiger will join us and regale us with some fascinating stories from one of his recent books. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Stephen, how did you get involved in becoming a lobbyist for the disclosure movement? That that seems like an odd career turn. How did you get to this point? What did you do that brought you to this place? Well, to be correct, I I entered the field of UFO ET phenomena in 96, or early 96, at Cambridge, John Mack's program for extraordinary experience research. Uh, at the time, the disclosure, quote, movement was all incipient at best, mm-hmm. but in development. Politics of disclosure was slowly building since 91. So I like to feel that I helped shape the disclosure movement as opposed to joining it. And uh, I entered in 96 simply because I had decided I wanted to focus on something that I thought had larger value for the rest of my life. I had generally been doing things of little consequence as far as I was concerned. And it reached that point in life when it's do or die. I had a mixed and complex background. But I was always, had always been a political activist. I just didn't seize on that. There were indications going back to college, but I never looked at it as a vocation, but rather just an occasional interest. Mm-hmm. So I, I went, I went to work uh, as a volunteer at John Max operation, but that wasn't a fit. And then while I was up there in my office, I realized that I had the ability to go to Washington and set up and deal with the political side of this, and I quickly figured that that registering as a lobbyist would be a a good way to attract attention and might be a first. I rushed down there after making this decision in order to get set up as a lobbyist for fear that somebody else might do it before I did. It's 11 years later. No one has. (laughs) You've had the field all to yourself, so to speak. For 11 years, I think it's the pay that keeps uh, others from signing up for this uh, genre. Yeah, well, I mean, people think about lobbyists, and they think about uh, really cushy dinners and expense accounts. I'm guessing that you don't live that lifestyle. No, there's actually a very serious matter here. It's a complicated subject, but I'll try to condense it. There is a great deal of propaganda in the intellectual marketplace regarding lobbying and political action committees and other advocacy tools that are allowed under, well, that are, of course, allowed under the First Amendment and monitored in some cases through or moderated by the Federal Election Commission. And this propaganda is deliberate. And to make a long story short, the propaganda that's fed into the arena is about how lobbyists are bad and and, uh, and rich and control or, or, uh, you know, always trying to influence uh, politicians to do bad things. And PACs are, uh, you know, the ruination of uh, democracy because all that money is being spent and so forth and so forth. This is, in fact, propaganda. What's going on is that the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, all who already have a great deal of influence, are very concerned that the larger population the rest of the people, you might say, will wake up one day and understand that these kinds of advocacy tools are incredibly power if they actually use them, right? And that's why they were created in the first place. And they want to be able to use them themselves, obviously, and continue to do so. And so they put out this 
nonsense so that the general public will buy into it and go, oh, I wouldn't hire a lobbyist. I, I don't want any lobbyists representing my concerns, and I certainly don't want any PACs because they're bad. Of course, under the First Amendment, such advocacy groups will continue to exist, and the rich and powerful will use them and have many PACs and many lobbies. In other words, the very people that are, that are putting out this stuff, helping to ensure this propaganda is out there, are maximizing their use of these tools. And let me give you a perfect example. We keep hearing about the uninsured medically in America. It's now up to around 46 million. If every uninsured, medically uninsured person in the country were to put $1 into a, quote, PAC, political action committee, devoted exclusively to representing the interests of the uninsured in Washington, hmm. that PAC would have $42 million. They would be out on buck, which they could hardly you know, care about. And that PAC's phone calls would return within five minutes or less every single time. But they think that kind of stuff is wrong. So they do nothing, and they remain uninsured, waiting for some nice person to come and give them universal health care. And you can apply this logic over and over again. So there is a huge lie going on. Yeah. You cannot operate a democracy without advocacy, and you can't do that and expect everyone to do it for free. You have to pay for it. And so the American people need to grow up and stop being children and stop being irresponsible and, and start taking responsibility for their needs and actions and fund, collectively, of course, and thus economically, the pursuit of their interests in Washington. And because they're not doing that, they're paying extraordinary costs and eventually their the loss of lifestyle as well as the loss of American prestige around the world. Well, certainly the media keeps them in a place where they believe they don't have that power. And that same media, of course, has always moved to marginalize any discussion of paranormal topics, and certainly the topic of UFOs. Which leads to the next question, what approach can one take in the work you're doing? What approach do you take to try to create an air of legitimacy around the discussion of this topic? What tools do you use? Well, the first tool is to take as a matter of fact that you're legitimate. I don't need to, quote, legitimize my rights to free speech or my fundamental constitutional rights to anybody, they exist de facto as a citizen of the country. And uh, the very first thing you do is is you you acknowledge to yourself that your work is legitimate. If somebody else doesn't think that, tough. There is a, what has happened since 1947 is part of a massive propaganda and disinformation campaign by our own government waged against our own people, was to get a wise and issue a concept, in this case, UFO phenomena, and everything mm -hmm. attached to it. This is a very common tool that's been used as long as there have been governments. Ghettoizing people, ghettoizing religious groups, ghettoizing ideas, building a wall around them with bricks and stone or ridicule curtains or what have, or, and then, what have you. And then anything that's attended or attached to that ghettoized target then gets lumped together and tossed in. And thus you isolate whatever the target is from the rest of the community, diminish it, degrade it and eliminate it as a factor in society. I think we all know some of the common examples of this in the 20th century. The government did this with respect to UFOs as a focused project starting in the early 50s. So under that approach, in due course, anything associated with the phenomenon was illegitimate. It didn't matter whether you were an astronaut or a Pulitzer Prize winner or had three PhDs. This is, of course, evil, venal government policy. And so I am legitimate de facto, and anyone who assumes otherwise is either stupid, has an agenda, 
uh, or just a, or simply doesn't know better. So you start with with your own sense of self legitimacy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove legitimacy to people who don't even know what they're talking about to begin with. So when I walk into a room, I'm legitimate. Anybody who wants to think I'm otherwise, make their case. I'll take them on. Because otherwise, you spend your entire time justifying your very existence or right to, to function. I encourage other people to take this task. In dealing with this topic, though, and this is a problem, of course, we run into on the Paracast, trying to have serious discussions about things that people inherently have uh, credibility issues with because of their cultural conditioning. I mean, I understand the stance you're taking because mm -hmm. Gene and I had taken that stance on the show. We're both people who had careers and credibility in our respective fields, and we've thrown our hats into this discussion because of our interest to see it be discussed in a, in a more rational way. And it turns out that that's a very difficult thing to do. Be, between the cultural conditioning Right. And then on the other hand, the incredible amount of infighting in the UFO field, it, it becomes very difficult to stake out any kind of productive ground. So the question is, how, how do you find going into government, which is what you're doing, which is a noble and brave thing, how do you find you're able to carve out a, a context to have a legitimate discussion? Just from our own curiosity, because we want to learn how to do this as well. My role is not to carve out a place for this position within the con context of the, the ghettoization of the issue by the government. My role is to end the ghettoization itself so that everyone can carve out a position or have a position of, uh, de facto. Remember, I'm an advocate, right? I'm not trying to get a place at the table. I'm assuming I already have a place at the table, and my job is to get a, you know, a placard there that the government is uh, acknowledging my place at the table. Uh, it's a matter of perception. But when you're dealing in these areas, when, when the government steps in to into the actual um, process of, of understanding and elucidating reality, it's in very dangerous ground. You, you just don't want it to go there. And it's done that. So it's skewed everything. So let's take a simple example, as you mentioned. There's a lot of infighting. Now, there seems to be a lot of infighting in the, in the field of, quote, ufology, a term that I think is no longer of any use. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? There isn't a single large endeavor, field of endeavor in, in human affairs that doesn't have a lot of infighting, period. So that doesn't affect me. It doesn't move me at all. And um, you know, it would be nice if there were less, but so what? The problem isn't that there's infighting. The problem is and has been from the beginning, and I think the focus must remain there. The number one problem in, in getting this issue off of the dime and moving forward is the United States government. Period. It's you know you can you can point to all of the deficiencies and problems and and uh, barriers and conundrums that exist as thousands of people try to understand an extremely complex phenomena, but all of that is trumped when the governing authority of a major nation, which has nuclear weapons, the ability to wage war, and huge standing armies, directs untold billions of dollars into all kinds of research ostensibly on, on behalf of its citizens. It is completely unacceptable for that government to tell you something isn't true when it is. And so if the government, and they do this all the time, says that something is there when it isn't, example, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or the government says that something isn't there when it is, presence of non-human beings engaging the planet and the human race, it has violated the social contract in extremists. 
And so first and foremost, before we get into any, you know, obsessive self-analysis or picayune examination of the faults of the people trying to get to the truth here, you directly confront the government, which has interfered with the truth process itself for 60 years, and you absolutely reverse that policy by throwing out, unelecting, not voting for, impeaching, indicting, and removing in whatever way possible those individuals that support that kind of mendacity. That's where I'm targeted. So it has nothing to do with my right to be at the table. It has nothing to do with whether it's serious. It has nothing to do with carving out a space. It has to do with directly confronting a government policy, which at one time served the American people, possibly as a matter of national security, and now has become simply another component in a vast empire of secrecy and abuse of power. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with
Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Stephen Bassett, he's executive director of the Paradigm Research Group. He is a lobbyist lobbying for UFO disclosure. So let's be specific about that. What exactly is your approach in dealing with the government? And also, what do you want them to reveal? Do you think they really know where these craft or whatever come from? There are elements within the government that know a great deal about the ET phenomena. They they know probably the various entities that are here. They have crash vehicles. They have extensive research and reengineering programs underway in underground facilities out in the West and elsewhere. There are elements that know some things about the phenomena and some that know others. It's, there's a certain degree of compartmentalization. And all of this in time must become transparent, but... It's a big deal. It's a big issue. So what first must happen, we'll call it the threshold event, and it is the, it is the prize of this activist work. Every major activist movement in history had a relatively defined prize. I use that word prize because it, it was a term that turned up in an award-winning, uh, groundbreaking documentary about the civil rights movement entitled Eye on the Prize. The prize of the civil rights movement was, of course, the Civil Rights Act which essentially eliminated all blocks to the rights to vote by uh, people of color in America, as well as elimination of segregation. That was the prize. It didn't hardly solve all the problems, people of color or, quote, the tensions of racism in America, but it was a, it was a prize that everyone knew once obtained would then spawn a host of cascading effects that would go on for generations. The, the prize in the women's uh, suffrage movement, I think, was pretty obvious. It was the right to vote. Period. The prize for Gandhi and, and his followers was, of course, an independent India, uh, independent of British rule, and on and on and on. So what's the prize here? It needs to be it needs to be defined, it needs to be straightforward, and it needs to be something that once achieved will then again create a cascading effects which will be will profoundly cause alter the landscape public public arena for for the better, hopefully. Now the prize is is, is disclosure. That's what everyone I work with is working for. It's disclosure with a capital D. And it's a simple concept, though a lot, a lot of people are still trying to grasp it. It is, as defined on the Wiktionary and the Webster Open Dictionary, these are what we'll call precursors to formal acceptance. This is a definition that I wrote and have been shepherding for some time. The formal acknowledgement by the governments of, world, of the world of the extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Meaning, yes, there are extraterrestrials. That's it. That's disclosure. Okay, right. let me ask you That's a couple of quick questions. I understand yep. the prize. A couple of things there. Number one, we had also, of course, Dr. Greer's Disclosure Project, which mm -hmm. has gone nowhere. Now, do you work with them, or are you separate from Dr. Greer's association? What? Dr. Greer and I are in the same train. We're just in different cars. Uh, the Disclosure Project has not gone nowhere. It has accomplished a great deal. And uh, that work goes back to the very early 90s, and it culminated in the a press conference held at the National Press Club on May the 9th, 2001, a, a significant press conference. If you know everything that happened, not everybody does. It's been criticized by people that are not really knowledgeable. There were media uh, effects that uh, there was there was an impact on the political media, and it was very likely. In fact, I was aware of certain developments that that there would have been follow-up investigations leading to who knows what. But all of that 
came to a halt with the 911 attacks. That was the problem there. Everyone got set back by that. The disclosure project went into a kind of suspension. Uh, while Greer shifted his attention to energy, alternative energy issues, which might have shed light on possibly the energy aspect of the ET truth embargo. Uh, a very complicated and dangerous approach, but uh, he's put a lot of effort into it. And he, he went and wrote his autobiography and attended to his own family, who he neglected you know, uh, quite a bit while he you know, pursued the the you know, civic work of, of public activism on this issue. The Disclosure Project will reignite at any time, so I wouldn't worry about that. And I continued in my own track. I had a simpler and easier, a more inflexible track. And so while I was set back a little bit by 911 as well, I immediately then moved into other, I, I knew, continued my work in, in, in various projects, including getting on the ballot in the 8th District of Maryland in the 2000 election and debating the candidates and bringing up the ET issue. It's really a first, I think, in American history. And then I created the X Conference, which first took place in September of, uh, or April of 2004, and then again in April of 2005, bringing the other witnesses, researchers, and what have you, right in Washington and inviting the Congress and staff members to come. The third one will occur in just a few days, September 14 through 16 at Hilton Gaithersburg outside of Washington. And once again, we'll continue that particular activist uh, tool, and uh, we'll have a fourth one in April 18 through 19 of next year, in the middle of the primary season. All the information on the X conference is at X, letter X-conference.com, X-conference.com. And you, know, you people can sign up or show up and join with us on that. You know, we're on different tracks, but we, we, we share the same goal, disclosure, as does all of my colleagues, Alfred Weber, Michael Salo, Paola Harris, Mike Bird, Victor Fagiani, and new people that are emerging in the UK and France and Germany. Disclosure is the prize. In that regard, your listeners need to know three fundamental things from our little chat. Everything else is gravy. These three things they need to make a note of and remember. They are as follows. There is an extraterrestrial presence engaging the planet. That's an absolute certainty. It's not up for debate as far as I'm concerned anymore. Those who want to debate it can do so. They can debate how many angels can stand on a pin. I don't care. It's their business. The government is fully aware of that presence and has chosen to embargo the truth of it and the facts of it from the American citizens and other first world governments have followed the American lead in this regard since 1947 and before. And the third point is that this embargo is literally falling apart after a pretty good run of uh, 60 uh, years. And as a result, the disclosure event could take place at any time, as in tomorrow morning, and that your listeners need to be prepared for this, prepared to participate, prepared to understand, and prepared to engage the government to ensure that this seminal, it is in fact and will be the most profound event in human history, this seminal event will not be used by any subgroups, cabals or otherwise, to, some, to manipulate the American people in ways that are unacceptable. Those three things they must know. Be prepared for disclosure at any time. Stephen, our audience is probably better prepared than the average television viewing audience for this, but that Most said, certainly. there are issues that come up. And Certainly, one of the things that we try to do on the Paracast is foster an open-minded discussion about this phenomenon in general. And, and I say this from, uh, you know, 
the point of view of me being someone who has had multiple UFO encounters in my life, some of them rather significant, mass-level sightings. That said, mm -hmm. Stephen, when you say that, I mean, the very first thing you postulated was that, you know, the reality of this is that extraterrestrials are engaging the Earth, mm -hmm. to which I contend that clearly something outside of human experience, normal human experience, seems to be engaging us. But what leads you to say that this is extraterrestrial? There are a number of theories about what this could be. What hard evidence has emerged that you know of that would indicate that this is extraterrestrial in nature versus cryptoterrestrial or interdimensional? How do you delineate those things? Well, well, first of all, the evidence for an engagement of some sort of non-human presence is overwhelming. We, we, oh, non-human, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, okay. no, no all right, so let's let's start with that. That's a given. Now, then the question becomes: There's an infinite number of questions you could ask then. Well, about this quote non-human engagement. Oh, yeah. The first one would be: From where? Right. All right. Now, let me make it clear. It doesn't matter to me from where it is. It can be coming from. Well, it almost doesn't matter. If it's from another dimension, fine. If it's from another planet, fine. If it's from the inner inner Earth, a little less fine. Right. But even if it's from the inner Earth, if you consider the ter terrestrial, meaning the surface of the planet, those living within the biosphere of the planet, then even inner Earth almost becomes extraterrestrial. But let's 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 skip the you know the the fancy, the fancy uh, language. Look. Occam's razor applies here. The most simplest explanation is usually the, tr the, the, the right one, and you start with the simplest explanation. In this case, it's a no-brainer, right? We live in a biosphere on a planet that revolves around the sun. The galaxy is filled with billions of suns, and increasingly we're, we're starting to learn that almost all of them have planets around them. Some of those planets are going to be in life zones. They're going to have biospheres. They're going to create life, and some of that life is going to eventually build spaceships. That's so simple and straightforward, I think any sixth grader would get it. And so before we get into multi-dimensions and astro-projections and inner Earth and cryptozoology, I think you assume that if there's non-human beings flying around, they come from another planet. And the easiest way to get to that Occam's razor point is to ask yourself a simple question. If the human race had the ability to travel to any star in this galaxy in a modest amount of time, weeks, days, or months, we, would we or would we not be traveling through the galaxy? Of course we would. Of course. And absolutely. so, end of discussion. Most of these counter-arguments that you hear about inner Earth and extra dimensions and the other stuff, you know, it's an intellectual exercise. It's fine, and someday we may have some of these details. But unfortunately, most of it's not really up and up. Most of it is arguments being put forward to try to defer or delay this ultimate realization. A lot of people are just not ready yet to accept that we're living in a galaxy filled with other life and civilizations. And so they just keep dodging and weaving and faking and juking and hoping there's going to be some but, sort of exotic do, do you really think that's true at this point in time? I think that with the proliferation, certainly in the last 40 years, of the media that deals with this topic, if anything, I think the argument could be made that people are not only ready, but almost wanting this to happen. Uh, well, look, half the American people 
believe that there's an extraterrestrial explanation behind UFOs. Mm -hmm. The polling doesn't break it down much after that. It doesn't poll, okay, well, uh, those of you that believe there's an extraterrestrial, how many think it's multi extra uh, from another dimension? How many think right. it's from another planet? They don't do that. And it doesn't really matter. All right? Somebody doesn't, I said there's an extraterrestrial engagement, and the only, the only possible explanation that might, quote, make that certainty that I pointed out to be problematic would be if, in fact, if the entire UFO phenomenon, as understood, is coming from beings that have never left this planet, but either somehow live in concert with us, but undetected, or come from the inner Earth. And so I will grant the possibility that that could explain the whole thing, and thus the, quote, extraterrestrial uh, engagement would be a little off-center. But, you know, I'm willing to put everything I own down against that explanation, and I'm going to collect money at the end of the day. So let, let's just keep it simple, all right? The idea that we're the only space-faring sentient beings in the galaxy, if you know how big the galaxy is, is an absurdity, and I would prefer to deal in some, some straightforward uh, thinking and not have to constantly uh, explain away ridiculous absurdities. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com. And your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Stephen Bassett, Executive Director of the Paradigm Research Group. He is a lobbyist for UFO Disclosure, and we'll tell a little bit more about that upcoming event, which will actually be starting when this show is aired. And David and our old friend Jeff Ritzman will also be covering that event in Absolutely. person. David, Absolutely. you had a question. I know you're champing at the bit. Well, see, Stephen, the thing is, on the Paracast, we're known for being very opinionated and strong in those opinions. Good. Um, so we relate to you in that way, but we also would probably say that when someone makes definitive statements, mm -hmm. it's dangerous territory. And here's something I just want to put forward to you. I um, attended uh, months ago, back in the spring, a local MUFON meeting, and uh, people knew who I was. Um, I started expressing myself in the way that only a native New Yorker can uh, with a bunch of other native New Yorkers. And somebody asked me, about a certain aspect of the UFO realm, and I started going to an explanation, they stopped and they said, oh, no, 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 give us the Reader's Digest version. And mm -hmm. the, the problem is that it's our belief that this phenomenon does not have the equivalent of a Reader's Digest version, that when we make definitive statements, what that does, and again, I'm 
real guilty of this myself. So I, I say this not in any sort of an accusatory tone, but just saying this is what I've found, that when I make definitive statements, that ends up basically setting up a situation where having discourse about this topic is difficult. And, and this is, I think, in terms of talking to a larger audience about this, which is really, at the end of the day, what's going to happen if there is indeed a form of disclosure or disclosure of information that, and I contend that when disclosure comes, we are going to discover that it is not what we thought it was to a certain extent. And I'm not saying it's completely different from what we thought it was, but if we try to find the reasons for the fact that this whole topic has been kept so secret for so long, one starts to wonder, and this is going to be my next question to you, in your opinion, why has this been kept secret for so long? What is the secret agenda around this? And this is probably the $64 billion question. Mm -hmm. No, I'll get to that. Let's back up for a second. All right. You're getting into some very important stuff, which needs to be clarified. You're right. Definitive statements have the potential to be dangerous if they're incorrect, which is why one should be very careful when making them. Right. right? Don't make definitive statements unless it's solid. Right? That's, that's just prudent and intellectually wise. So when I say to you that the, the effects of gravitational attraction toward the center of large masses, either whether viewed in, as in, in a Newtonian way or in a relativistic way, is constant and pervasive throughout space, uh, and I make that as a definitive statement, based on a considerable amount of investigation by scientists going back a very long time. That is a wise thing, because in fact that it is true, it is, sub, it is well uh, substantiated, and therefore anybody who said, well, you know, a definitive statement is a dangerous thing, and therefore I'm going to walk up on top of a 20-story building, and I'm just going to walk off the edge, because <laughs> I believe that gravity may not always apply, and thus I will simply float there and prove you wrong. The objectivity <laughs> of physics will hit you like a brick wall, as they say. Exactly. The real world as it exists, not as it is interpreted, is in fact definitive, all right? Now, so the fact is, and let me give, the fact is, is that we, we figured out the world is a, is a sphere, and that became a definitive statement. And those who want to debate it are welcome to do so, but by and large, it is dangerous for them to do so. So when I say that there is an extraterrestrial presence, the reason it would be dangerous to assume that is not the case is because that is one of those definitive statements, all right? The Earth goes around the sun, the world is flat, the uh, world is round, rather, and there's extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. Now, there are tons of things about this field which I cannot make a definitive statement about, and I don't. But I think one of the problems here is that when you exist in a, in a propaganda reality mm -hmm. imposed upon you by, by heavily backed and fu funded uh, government disinformation, it, one of the reasons for that is to eliminate the ability to establish definitive statements so everybody stays in a foggy, gray, unresolved reality simply chasing their tails while the government does as it pleases. Now, here's a non-definitive statement, or I mean, but here's an area where you can't be definitive. What is the reason for the government cover-up? I, I can't say definitively until the government releases all of its documents and a comprehensive history of the entire period, starting probably 1940 and forward, we won't know. But based upon a whole lot of knowledge on the subject, I can give you a good guess as to the government's reasons. But it's not definitive. 
So what I'm about to say is not 100% certainty, but let me reiterate. The presence of extraterrestrials engaging this planet is a 100% certainty, and anybody who believes otherwise does so at their own risk. Now, the cover-up started as a standard national security matter. The presence of extraterrestrials became fully, fully known to the government no later than 1947, just as the Cold War, or the next war, and an endless series of wars was beginning. Huge amounts were at stake. They didn't know what it was fully. They didn't know the reasons for the ETs being here. The technology from that craft had huge weapons possibilities. So I'm hardly surprised that they made it a national security matter, slammed the lid of secrecy on it, and started investigating it as, as, at, at, at will and, with, and deferring any public disclosure until they were ready to do so. That's from the beginning. As time went on, the Cold War got worse. The more they knew about the tech, I'm sure the more weapons possibilities they saw, they saw no reason to end that embargo. And the embargo continued through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. At the same time, the huge secrecy structures that they had been building, not only to deal with the ET presence that had manifest, this is something that most people don't know much about or realize, but also to deal with the increasingly powerful Soviet Union, its threat to annihilate America, those vast complexes started to become a problematic. They became a problem for us. In other words, the solution started to become a new problem. And as that happened, the, the ET cover-up then became a justification for an ever-problematic new threat to the fundamental, the fundamental essence of, of our constitutional republic. And so by 1991, when the uh, Cold War ended, the basis for national security sequestration of the ET presence, I think, had lost its validity. And the abuses of power by the secret empire, as I like to call it, had become a national threat. So as far as I'm concerned, from 1991 forward, both ethically, prudently, politically, and socially, the only proper course was the end of the embargo disclosure of the ET presence and a process of unfolding of the information about this ET presence so that as many people, citizens as possible, knew as much as possible about the phenomena. Do you feel at this point that the population of certainly the United States will, and we should probably include the world in this, do you think people will be able to, for lack of a better way of putting it, handle a disclosure of this information, and, and I'm guessing that there are powers at play that have worked under the um, assumption or perhaps the excuse that to release such information would create social upheaval. And this is, I think at a certain point, that became the justification mechanism for keeping the secrecy locked down the way that it was. Do you think that there is certainly potential for that, given the way that the population has reacted to other forms of disclosure of things that have occurred? I'm not sure what other forms of disclosure you're referring to. Well, for uh, example, the, the sheer criminality, I think, of aspects of the United States government. I mean, I think... Well, that, I mean, there have been various, various disclosures and some mea culpas, and overall, the things the world went on without much upheaval. There's never been anything that I've, I've seen that's happened in my lifetime that upset the apple cart of society. Uh, four points need to be made, all right? First of all, it is not necessary for, for a transition to the new paradigm, the post-disclosure paradigm to take place. It is not necessary for the entire population to be uh, on board the train. All that is needed is a critical mass 
of aware people who have the means to address the issue and, and move us forward. That's been the way it's been in, in, all, in all of human history. Uh, we didn't need every single member of the South on board for a Civil Rights Act. We just needed a critical mass of people in the South on board, and once you had that, you got your Civil Rights Act. So that's point number one. Point number two, even if there is going to be some discomfort, it just doesn't matter. Disclosure is going to take place whether you're ready or not, right? And number three, I, I have long since doubted that anything the government does, frankly, or any agenda the government does truly is concerned about what the average American citizen may or may not go through. Sure. Uh, I believe the government has lost its way and is now run by people who are detached from reality ethically challenged and not fit to lead. And I blame the American people primarily for that. So well, that is irrespective yeah. of UFO reality or lack thereof. I think that's a truism. And I think a lot of people yeah. are beginning to accept that. As a matter of fact, what is it? The last survey that I was mentioning on the show that we have an 18 percent approval of Congress. This That's is right. after the Democrats got in everything. We don't That's believe right. the government. And the other thing about it, too, is we don't believe what the government says in general. Right. Yet they say UFOs don't exist, but we tend to believe that. Or no, 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 the polls will say exactly the opposite. Forgive me for don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm, I, I may say I'm an expert in this field. So I, I, I know what's going on. Uh, there are many polls, and there have been various questions phrased different ways. But if you were to read all the polls, you would. this is where the American people are, relatively with some accuracy, give or take a few percent here and there. Fifty percent of American citizens believe there's an extraterrestrial explanation behind the alleged, quote, UFO, unquote, phenomena. Fifty percent. The percentage of belief, that answer, and percentage points broken down demographically is very revealing, not surprisingly contradictory to the government propaganda. The higher the education level of the individual, uh, the higher the income level, the higher the percentage of people who believe there is an extraterrestrial explanation, meaning that poor people living in rural areas who are not well-educated are less likely to believe there is a extraterrestrial hypothesis. Between 80 and 90 percent of the people, and this is a very definitive question, therefore much less ambiguous, but a, more, a much more definitive question was, do you believe, there's something ambiguous about this, that the, Amer the, that the American government is telling you the truth regarding UFO phenomena? The answer is between 80 percent believe, typically as high as 90 percent believe, the, 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 say the government is not telling the truth. That's an extraordinary number, by the way. An unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was shows the American people are not stupid, but the fact that they that they believe that and there isn't some sort of massive uh, national investigation going on is is a sign of just how skewered the whole reality is. And then recently uh, they added a another another question, a new question to the poll. Uh, have you had contact with what you would consider to be an extraterrestrial beings? And I think in that case they were throwing in angels and 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 maybe uh, beings of that type. And 20% of the American people said they've had such contact. These are extraordinary numbers. That's the status here right now. But that also uh, so raises the biggest objection some people do make to the ETH. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. 
How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Stephen Bassett, Executive Director of the Paradigm Research Group. The objection, I think, voice is the fact that some kind of phenomenon where we contact beings from elsewhere has been part and parcel of human history from probably the very beginning. So, right. So are we then saying that extraterrestrials, whatever they are, have just been a constant here? I think that Bauckham's Razor says that any advanced base-faring civilization would be looking for biospheres uh, wherever they are, and once they find them, we'll either utilize them or monitor them uh, indefinitely. And since we know the age of the galaxy, we know the age of our solar system and so forth, there has been sentient life in the galaxy just under simple logic for probably several billion years. So I think the planet's been uh, under scrutiny of one kind or another for that long. So that's not, nothing surprising about that. The presence of ETs in the galaxy is ancient. The, the presence of flying, spacefaring, nuclear power utilizing uh, uh, sentient beings on this planet is in fact only 100 or so years old. So it's us that arrived at the, at the birthing process. We, we are just lucky that we're here. I mean, we happen to be here at the moment of birth, all right? Uh, the birthing process, it's really a bar mitzvah process. And every civilization, every sentient planet has to go through it. Sentient uh, holding planet has to go through it. This is the point. Not when ETs or non-terrestrials non engage them, but the point at which the, the species as a whole, learns that they're not alone. Obviously, if a saucer comes down 40,000 years ago next to an encampment of Cro-Magnon uh, beings, well, I guess those beings just found out that we're not alone, and the saucer leaves, and so what? I mean, they may have thought they were gods, and they'll paint something on the side of a cave, but nobody else saw that. 
but that's then. Now we're talking about a fully connected, networked, and highly technological civilization with full global consciousness, able to make phone calls completely around the world in seconds. So when that saucer come down this time, that would be formal contact in a sense. I mean, if it came down the White House lawn, and that would all go around the world in a few seconds. So we're now just in a very simple way. We're now at the point where the plant, the species as a whole, could learn of the ET presence all at the same time. That is the paradigm shift. That's the disclosure event, and that's what's about to happen. And I call it the bar mitzvah because it really is a coming of age. Just like a teenager, or rather an adolescent, reaches the age of 13 in, an, in the Jewish faith, is often at that point bar mitzvah, which sort of symbolizes their crossover into adulthood. No one would say that that newly bar mitzvah teenage or bat mitzvah you know, young woman is now ready to, quote, go out and be a full adult. They're, they're simply acknowledging that they've crossed that line. Well, that's the line we're about to cross. We're still going to be a very troubled race with plenty of problems, but we're going to have entered a new phase. And that phase is one in which we as a planet know that we're not the only inhabitable planet with sentient beings. We're part of a much larger complex, and we're going to have to adjust our, our, our thinking accordingly. And every planet that's ever had a sentient being on it has gone through this process before. This is nothing new, which is why I believe there are some protocols involved here, which is why I believe that you can see what appears to be protocols in the behavior of these ETs as they've moved about and around us for the last 60 years. And again, I, and, and let me reiterate, I'm not at this point making definitive statements. I'm just making sensible statements based upon the information available to me. I think what will happen after we have disclosure is we will have a process of divulgence of information and understanding and awareness. Obviously, the colleges will finally get involved. The political press will finally see the light. You'll have money pouring into research. And for the next, oh, three, four years, it will be ETs all the time. And we'll learn a lot about it. Uh, the government will possibly hold some things back. There'll be some disinformation, but we'll learn an enormous amount. And after three or four years, the whole thing will start to become quite boring. At which point, I believe, as per this process repeated countless times over the age, just formal contact, not flying around in the middle of the night and dealing with somebody, but rather formal on the White House long contact will occur. And we will then enter the, another phase where now we're not just aware, but in fact, directly engaging. And we'll have an ambassador to the galaxy or an ambassador to the star systems or whatever the hell. And based on that time frame, and I love saying this, I mean, if the disclosure to occur no later than the, the spring of 2009, which is where I think it's now targeted based upon a new Democratic administration, or even tomorrow based upon a need for the current administration to find another legacy uh, as quickly as possible, the um, awareness process, investigative process, would then give us contact in around 2012. Stephen, let me let me drop you back a couple of notches here. Yeah. We've been talking since the 1950s about possible disclosure. Certainly, Major Donald Kehoe rallied very hard through mm -hmm. his own efforts and through the efforts of NICAP while he was involved there mm -hmm. to get congressional hearings, feeling that would lead to disclosure. Of course, nothing happened. So well, why do you feel why do you feel it might happen now? We've heard this for years, and it just has not worked that way. The the easiest way is to give you a simple analogy. From the day the Soviet Union was created, it was at risk. Obviously, it was a forced uh, government 
control government, uh, operating very much coercively and against a great deal of the public interest. And so it could have fallen apart at any time, but it, it grew in strength and eventually had a strong grip on the country. And it's, it eventually became so much in control that nobody thought for a second that the Soviet Union would ever end. Of course, the fact is that it, since it was built on mendacity and propaganda, not and that's that's I mentioned that specifically. It was inevitably going to collapse, and of course, it finally did in '91. Came unglued, starting in '89, culminating in '91. A lot of people didn't see it coming, but it was inevitable. All right, this cover-up started in '47, '50, '52, and could have broken at any time. It's almost come unglued a couple of times. It's had a pretty good run, but it's now suffering under the own, its own weight. It's under assault from many forces, outside forces. And because it's built on mendacity and propaganda, it's fundamentally structurally unsound. And so the fact is is that uh, Keogh was in the early days of the, of the truth embargo. Uh, the government had a lot of latitude, a lot of leeway by the people, and, uh, and uh, he didn't succeed. Uh, it's now 2007, and, and the forces on this truth embargo are enormous. They're coming from multiple directions, other countries, witnesses emerging, the Internet, ma massive multimedia, multi-tiered media structures, YouTube, uh, all the researchers, books, papers, the public awareness level, movies, the ability for the government to continue to maintain. There are no extraterrestrials engaging the planet while they fly all over the place, and every day more people figure out that they're here, is, is reaching a collapse point. And it's a cumulative effect that it was nowhere near critical mass in the time of Keogh, but it is now. That's my answer to your question. Well, for the sake of the show, I hope you're right, because it would make the work that we do a little easier. But I have to tell you, Stephen, and, and hopefully I'll learn something down at the X conference coming up uh, shortly, but uh, I have to be a little less optimistic. I, I don't know what it is you've seen in terms of cracks in the system that would indicate that the forces that are keeping this stuff under wraps they're anywhere near to collapsing, and I think in many ways there are so many other distractions right now. Um, there is an eminent financial collapse in this country. There is a, an unsustainable illegal war going on. There is the tremendous pressures that bear down on the American society at this point. And, and by definition, because of the interconnected world on the global society, I think there are so many of the things that are concerning people that you know the idea that this is all going to break in the next couple of years i think it's optimistic again i wish you were right i'd give anything really for you to be right about this but I, at this point it's hard to see that given the current context again of what's happening politically in this in this country um when you go to other countries you find much higher levels of interest in this topic and that i'll absolutely agree with you and you go to south america you know, go to Mexico, you see much higher levels of interest in this topic, and I think even much higher levels of acceptance. Uh, but that said, there is a sense right now, when I talked about the disclosures that are affecting the American society at a subconscious level, I think people walk around every day at a subconscious level with the knowledge that we are engaged in some very nasty things around the world. And I think that weighs very heavily on people. And that can't be discounted. We have to talk about this in a larger framework of the problems and the challenges facing this country right now. I don't know that you're going to find that for the, the average American, and again, we're talking about the United States, that this topic 
is even really necessarily on their radar outside of a context that deals with entertainment. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm, I'm concerned about that. But at the same time, I suspect that's probably not an, uh, it's not a definitive statement, but it's probably for the most part fairly accurate. So what have you seen? Very brief, it's like a four-and-a-half-minute warning, guys. Right. Yeah, well, we're down to just a couple minutes, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to break. But, but look, you, you made the key statement was, you see, I don't know what you know. So therefore, and you went on, well, yeah, you don't know what I know. And if you did, I think you'd think otherwise. What we'll have to do is we're going to have to have another show here soon. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I know. And when I tell you that, you'll understand why. Uh, disclosure is eminent and close at hand. I, I sure this issue transcends all of the other issues that you brought up. The quote real estate bubble in America is nothing but a tiny gnat flying around in, in somebody's uh, immediate vicinity compared to the the power and implications of this issue. This issue is transcendent. Everything else is almost next to irrelevant. Stephen, before we let you go, tell us mm-hmm. again about the X conference that will be in progress starting when the show is aired. Yeah. Mention a few of the guests. Well, we've got Richard Dolan, we've got Sal and Weber coming in, we've got Pope coming in, uh, Nick Pope coming in from England, uh, Gilda Bidet from France, uh, Stephen Greer will present, uh, Jaime Moussant, Paola Harris, 20 panelists and speakers. We're going to get into the, uh, the, the Jimmy Carter years. We're going to get into the Clinton years. X-conference.com. You can just show up at the door and pay. If you want to book the hotel, you better book it now. Uh, the information is on the website. It is the third X-conference. These events are not just held so they can you know, have speakers come in front of you. They're, it, it is part of the activist tools used by Paradigm Research Group to continue to pressure the government to eventually changing the policy about the ET presence. And that's it. I look forward to doing another show when we'll get into the guts of this information that you need to know about. Thanks, Stephen. Well, Stephen's got really good energy. He's really uh, very focused, and I hope he's right. But I remain skeptical about the idea that the government is going to uh, disclose something to us. And we definitely have to get Stephen back on, Gene, because we need to delve deeper into what this something is. The idea that we're definitely talking about an extraterrestrial presence, I'm a little uncomfortable with. I think it's a non-human presence. and I think, that I think he's a little bit too sure of himself that way. And the other thing is here, a lot of people have said they have secret information that there's going to be a disclosure thus and when. And guess what? Every single time it doesn't happen, they prepare themselves for a great fall by being so certain about things. Because the one thing I've seen in the UFO field all these years is that certainty is doomed to failure. And that's why I worry about what he says. It'd be nice to see it happen. But that is one of my main concerns. I mean, you and I would love for that to happen. That would basically mean that we could do do this show every day of the week and do it comfortably and not have to worry about how we're going to pay our rent. I mean, you know, this is what is a little frustrating. I I agree that this is necessary, but I contend that disclosure may not be what we think it is. And and this is where, you know, what we try to do obviously on this show is talk about all of the possible explanations. And yeah, I mean, you could you could make all sorts of arguments about what we're talking about here, you know, whether these things come from an alternate dimensional reality, whether or not they're 
extraterrestrial, you know, in talking to Jeff Ritzman, we've had a lot of discussions about this. And something that seems clear to me is that this is much more complex than what it appears to be on the facade. The facade of this makes makes you think that this is one thing. What you start to realize is that there's a very high degree of deception here on the part of whatever this phenomenon is to make us think it's something and possibly it really actually being something else. And, and you know, coming up on part two of the show, we have Brad Steiger. And Brad has a new edition of his book called Shadow World, True Encounters with Beings from the Dark Side. And are those beings extraterrestrials from the spirit world, from a place where we don't want to know too much about because it bodes us ill? That's coming up next on the Paracast. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. So, Brad, recently one of your books of earlier this century, The Shadow World, was released or re-released. It's subtitled True Encounters with Beings from the Dark Side. When we think of dark side, we think of that thing in Star Wars, you know, the powers from the dark side. So what is the dark side in connection with your book, though? The dark side is really discussing, in other words, ghosts. All right, that's one one inhabitant of Shadow World, we have to deal with them. But it's really touching on something that I know you've entertained. Our friend T. Allen Greenfield has entertained. And something that occurred to me very, very early in research, both with UFOs and the paranormal, is that we seem to be dealing so often with what we will call the trickster or the cosmic trickster. And we're not referring to Jim Mosley here. We're referring to multidimensional beings. Uh, and when we first began talking about that years ago, Gene, you know, that was pretty much science fiction. But now increasingly a large number of physicists, especially those who embrace the parameters of quantum mechanics physics, indicate that we probably very likely could be and have a situation of parallel universes and multi-dimensions and so forth. So it's it's really dealing with aspects of what appear to be normal, quote-unquote, haunting situations, but people who have encountered spirit mimics are a large section of the book, and they are people that are, excuse me, entities that appear, I mean, they're like 95% appear as we do. And I found and really got me onto this. I found an old British published book, Thurston Hopkins, who wrote about these kind of entities in his book in 1946, Adventures with Phantoms. And he said, quoting, they are creatures who have strayed from some unknown region of haunted woods and perilous wilds. They dress like us, pretend they belong to mankind, and profess to keep our laws and code of morals. 
but in their presence we are always aware that they are phantoms and that all their ideas and actions are out of key with the general pitch and tone of normal life. So people have encountered these. There's one instance I have of, of a man who even had a love affair for quite some time. He thought with what was a fascinating woman. Well, she turned out to be more fascinating than he guessed when she completely disappeared and then reappeared in his life in and, and strange places and, and at strange times. In this case, her presence was witnessed by a number of his friends. This kind of thing sounds so much, doesn't it, like elves and fairies, that kind of legend of old where the you step into the fairy circle or step into the enchanted world and maybe you feel you're gone for days and it's actually been an hour. Maybe you feel you've been gone an hour and you come back and your children are grown. It's that strange mixture of time and space that we just cannot at this minute in time and space and our reality begin to define accurately. Brad, let me ask you a question about that woman because um, there's an interesting corollary here. As this woman appeared to him at different times, did she take on different physical appearances? N not in this case. Not in this case. But I know what you're suggesting and I agree. They're shapeshifters. The one thing, and, and this sounds so much, someone pointed out, like the men in black, which we're familiar with, of course, in ufology, these entities that seem to appear after UFO sightings. And I think the UFO mystery is all part of, I mean, this is all one mystery. I don't think we can separate paranormal from UFO research, in my opinion. And this says nothing about the great question, extraterrestrial life. We won't even go there. We'll put that in another category. Mm -hmm. But I think for the large number of UFO instances which we've been exploring now for many many years really fit more into what we call the paranormal or multi-dimensional activities it would seem that the field of ufo research is pretty evenly split between people who embrace the extraterrestrial hypothesis the eth and what is now becoming more widely discussed which is the crypto terrestrial hypothesis postulating that we're talking about beings that potentially have evolved alongside with us here on the planet. As we look back at things like fairies and elves and, and other types of ghostly beings appearing over the years, do you find that there are specific cases that would suggest a crossover between what we normally would call the UFO phenomenon? and these interdimensional beings. Can you think of specific cases that would have led us to go down that path of thought? Specific cases that I've researched, you mean? Or, yes. Or are you Absolutely. talking about classic UFO cases? Either one, but preferably yeah, well, stuff I, that you've researched. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the, the things, the stories that I've researched, the cases, the instances, the farm family that I knew very well after they contacted me originally and said, UFOs appear over our fields so often that you can set your watch by it. Well, obviously, with that come on, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I was there one evening with a number of highway patrolmen, attorneys, judges, a number of, uh, as we say, you know, solid witnesses, and the objects did come. They did appear. 
It was very interesting because just before they appeared, a mail plane, U.S. mail plane came. And you traditionally in our dimension, you saw it come slowly. You heard the engine get louder and louder, and then it passed over. When the UFOs came, and there were two of them, they simply appeared. They were just there, bang. And then they seemed to do a great loop. I don't know where they went. And then he'll say, he said they'll be back in exactly 22 minutes. They came back in 22 minutes because he had been observing this so often. Hmm. Now, what happened to that farm family is they began to notice mysterious strangers following them. Their child, one of their children, was selected by a member of the State Board of Education who arrived one day at the school for special attention, just arrived and told the principal he wanted to see this particular girl and question her because she'd heard she was so bright. Well, hmm. the principal said, you know, thought, well, okay, she's, she's kind of, you know. But it was very strange. And he, this alleged representative of the state board behaved in a peculiar manner, and it started to get on the principal's nerves. So he called the state board. They never heard of this person. And then he asked the individual to leave, saw him go down the hall, didn't see him leave the building, but he appeared to leave. He asked the girl, what did he talk to you about? What, did, what were the questions, these educational questions? And the girl said, all he talked to me about was, did I believe in flying saucers? Did I believe in outer space? And so forth. They noticed individuals following them also in their farm work. They'd look in their machine shed and there would be someone watching them. The strangest incident of all occurred when the young farmer, this was a farm family, many different age groups, but one of the young farmers had to fly to another city to do some farm business with a grain sale. He noticed these two men following him on board, the same ones he'd seen watching him from time to time. They came on board the airplane with him, really making him feel uneasy. Somewhere in mid-flight, they disappeared. This man, totally down to earth, could not accept this. He noticed a strange odor. Here again, we get into that sulfur, that rotten egg smell so many people have reported with these entities. But they were not to be found. He assumed when they landed, they must have been in, in the restroom. He waited hours. He checked. He checked the baggage department. He checked everywhere. They had literally disappeared. Now, this has happened to a number of individuals where they have been harassed for decades because they saw something. <laughs> they don't understand what they could have seen because they picked up something and took it from a particular area. A university professor wrote to me that in his native New Zealand, he had innocently picked up a rock with strange markings on it. He had been harassed for 20 years by people who would call him and say, you took it, you stole it, you're a thief. People who said, who claimed to be authorities, anthropologists, or jewelry experts. Oh, I hear you have this rare, exotic rock. Can I see it? He was Harris wherever he went, whatever college he went to, whatever school he started. When he was teaching in one school, an innocent youth came in. And he thought, well, I'm a new teacher, and he wants to get acquainted with the new teacher. The young boy smiled at him and then drew the markings on the blackboard. 
then mm. walked out, and he never saw that student again. These kind of interactions, which seem to just, you know, defy any rational explanation except for the shadow world, these entities, what their mission is, why they're interacting with us, that's the rub. What are they doing? Well, if the reaction that we have to these things is a certain level of fear, could we make the argument that somehow whatever these things are, they derive some form of sustenance or nourishment from negative emotions or from fear? Is that a possibility? Oh, yes, always. I think you're right on. That's one of the theories I propose in the book is that some of them literally are spiritual vampires, psychic vampires, whatever you say, they are drawing from our energy. That's why we have several exercises, meditations, and so forth in the book. If you feel you're being quote-unquote afflicted, I don't know what better term to use, to center yourself, to eliminate. So some, I think, are spiritual vampires. They're gaining from our fear. Others, okay, in some instances, people would say, I was visited by an angel because this person or persons appeared, helped me, saved me, assisted me, whatever. And then someone says, I was afflicted by a demon, this monster, and so forth. Again, once it appears, you know, who you are is what you get in one sense with these entities. Some just simply be, seem to be observing. Now, one interesting comment, which as you said earlier, uh, a spiritual or psychic species that exists alongside of us, which is one of the theories I propose and, and really lean rather heavily toward. When a young man had met at what he thought was a church social and tried to make connection with a very attractive young woman, he was blocked by a number of the men who appeared to be very hostile. Then a man who seemed to be the leader or spokesman for the group kind of interceded. But then later when the young man, college student, persisted in trying to relocate this girl, he was eating at an all-night diner and he saw this man and one of the hostile gentlemen with him at this diner. He came over to him and said, what's the problem? You know, you, you, you seem to receive me and I would really like to be in touch with this, this girl again, looking for a long-term relationship. I'm very serious about her. You said at the picnic that we were all one family. So he says, I believe in that, the brotherhood of man. The man then said something very interesting. He said, we are related, but not in the sense that you think. Some of us resent you. Some of us accept you. Now, he turned around. The waitress said, your hamburger's ready. He turned around, and when he looked back, the booth was empty. Hmm. This happened in the Midwest, happened in a college down here. Three years later, the young man graduated from college and now happened to be in New York City riding in a cab. He looks on the street and he sees the young lady and he sees several of the people who are at that church picnic walking on the streets. He makes the mistake of rolling down the window and shouting at them, hey, hey, whereupon they notice him, they make eye contact, and they quickly go into a theater lobby. He then will always ask himself, who were they really? And you know, what did they mean that we're related but not in the sense we humans might think? 
I think it's a good. There's a good chance our listeners hear this and think, okay, this sounds a lot like the kinds of things you hear in urban legends. These sound like variations on a theme that they've heard, usually in the realm of fiction. Mm-hmm. Do we have anything? Concrete, And I know that's almost like a trick question here, but is there anything that would indicate an actual source for these things? Or, again, back to the issue of motive, is there anything we can glean from any kind of hard evidence that would suggest that there is a particular agenda? And I know this is like trying to sort of a... Corella, a you know, a wet cat, um, and try to grab a hold of it, but uh, to round know, up a herd of cats. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Let's round up those cats in a moment. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Brad Steiger, author of millions of books, millions and billions of books, including <laughs> Shadow World, recently re-released by our friends at Anomalous Books. And David, you're posing a vast, broad question here. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a vast, broad topic. And, you know, I'm going to now say something that might make Gene's eyebrows uh, rise up and this I'm is, sorry, uh, my eyebrows were shaved for this show. Well, Forget it. Go ahead. Nice, nice. I, I learned um, to do that with you. On the show, I've talked about some of my paranormal experiences. I've talked about a UFO sighting I've had. I've talked about uh, an apparition I saw with a friend of mine. I've talked about an experience centered around my mother's death. I will now mention that in my life, I have had a number of interactions with what I would categorize Brad and Gene, as these types of beings. Um, I have had a number of interactions uh, with a female who, and this goes back at least 20 years, maybe a little longer than 20, actually, yeah, a little, little more than 20 years ago. I had a number of interactions with what I ultimately ended up dubbing 
as a, a succubus. Uh, and, and and again, you know, I, I kind of go on a limb here bringing this up because already I've received some fairly nasty email about some of my admissions on this show. But um, I actually experienced for about two and a half years recurring interactions with what I could only categorize as a shape-shifting entity. And uh, this involved her doing things like essentially materializing, uh, appearing almost out of thin air, disappearing practically in, into thin air, literally retaining one voice but looking completely different. When I say completely different, going from short to tall, going from dark to light, um, not like minor hair color changes or anything like that. What definitely qualifies as... Again, sort of the term shape-shifting, Brad, I think is exactly accurate. I really respect your courage in, in saying this, Dave, because this is, uh, again, I'm getting files of these types of stories, and people are reluctant to come forth. And, and as well, you sure. said, in your position now as a host, you, you're going to get a lot of emails. Huh. I know, and uh, I really respect your courage in saying this. Now, again, some of the... There must be an agenda there. Now, were you being read? Were you being groomed? Were you taught anything besides uh, the shape-shifting and the appearances? Did she seem to have a tutelary position? Did you seem sometimes to be a student? No. No. What I, the, the impression that I got was that she was literally drawing energy from me. After our interactions, I would be incredibly drained. I would feel right. sick. Right. I would I would be shaking. I really got to the point where, to be perfectly frank, I was scared of her. I did not want to run into her. And the last time I ran into her, I basically holed myself up in a friend's apartment while she sat on the steps. And my friends saw her. And, um, uh, you know... Uh, they really didn't know what to make of it at the time. They said, oh, it's just you know this crazy Biedny and another one of his wacky girlfriends or something. But mm -hmm. I tried to explain to them, look, I, I cannot and will not even confront her because I don't know what she is. And I, when I said it that way, these two very close friends of mine looked at me and said, you don't know who she is. I said, no, no, I don't know what she is. Right. And this really... Um, I mean, you know, you had to see the looks they gave me. It was, it was, it was out there. At the same time, I was really kind of terrified in a way. I mean, I didn't know what the hell was going on with us. It was a situation where, as I said, I mean, I would interact with her for minutes at a time, and I would be sick for a couple of days afterwards. Okay. okay. Uh, this is very odd. So no, she wasn't teaching me anything at all. Um, right. okay. I, I really felt she she fit that profile of psychic vampire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, this is, um, you know, pattern profile from so many. And, and uh, I sometimes I simply seem to be watching. I'll, I'll just share a, a quick instance, which, again, what is the sense of it except to indicate, you know, we're keeping an eye on you. Right. Sherry and I did an editorial trip to New York City. And as Gene knows, and you probably do too, Dave, that most publishers' offices don't look like the way they do in Hollywood. <laughs> They're usually little kind of cluttered places. But this it's was called the hole publisher. in the wall. Right. right. This was a major publisher, and this particular office did look like that 
one of those in the Hollywood, and we had kind of an intense conversation with the editor, and and we were kind of uh, Sherry and I were both kind of disturbed by what was this, and we weren't really happy with the way the conversation went. And we went, uh, we saw a nice little Irish pub, and we thought we'd get some corned beef and cabbage, have a beer, sit there, and, and discuss the matter. Well, opposite us, in the, and on the table, we were in the booth, and then in the table, three guys came in, strictly blue-collar, lunch break, and repeated word for word the conversation that we had just had with our editor. Now, they didn't look at us. I don't know what they were really saying. They may have been discussing what they're going to do after their lunch break, but what they said and what we heard with our mouths open in astonishment is as if they had a tape recording of our meeting and were playing it back, almost hmm. in a mocking way, because the meeting did not go well, almost in a mocking way, rubbing our noses in it. Now, also, and I'm not going to make this a long story, that's how Sherry and I really got together. I met her years before, and I thought, wow, you know, this is a great, great lady, and boy, I'd like to get to know her better. She goes out of my life. She's busy. Many years later, I, I, I attend at the very last minute, the last minute, a friend urges me to come to a lecture he's sponsoring. He's supposed to be some great wise guru, and he wants me to listen to the man. So he has a seat for me right in the front row. So I sit in the front row to please my friend. And uh, operative is the word last minute. I wasn't going to go. I decided to. I hadn't been there very long when an attractive blonde lady sits down beside me and says, Oh, are you Brad Steiger? And I said, Yes. May I sit by you? And I said, Sure. Then she turns to me and says, I bring you greetings from our mutual friend, Sherry Hansen. I said, you know Sherry? Where is she? Last I heard, she's in Los Angeles. No, no, she's here in Phoenix, and Sherry and I take a class together. And she said, if I saw you tonight to give you her greetings. Well, my my mind was full of Sherry. It didn't think of, now, I came at the last minute. How would this lady and how would no, Sherry yeah. know at the class that I'm going to be there? And, <laughs> okay, long story short, months later when I finally say, because I called Sherry, <laughs> we got together, you know the rest of the story, but it was weeks later that I brought up this blonde lady who was a friend of hers and, of course, Sherry had never heard of such a person, didn't know such a person. In fact, she says, I don't take classes here. I give them. Now, it appears when you're supposed to be together with someone, someone who isn't a shapeshifter, but is a very solid, becomes an important, integral part of your life, they will get you together. So, again, to play the role of the audience for a moment, I think people listening to what you just said, to the story you just told, People listening to my admission, which is a first on the show, about interacting with these beings, people will say, all right, A, uh, these guys have agendas. Uh, Brad writes books about this stuff. Bietany's got a show about this stuff. So they've got to add something interesting to the mix. So they bring up these stories because they're good stories on one level. On the other hand, these stories... Uh, 
basically create a context for discussing these topics. Brad, you've been dealing with this for years, and I'm, and I'm asking you this as a piece of advice because as I reveal more and more of my experiences, I'm finding that it's making my life more and more difficult um, in terms of credibility, um, in terms of uh, uh, you know having pressures from things like clients who will hear about these things and then think, okay, this guy's just you know crazy. How do you deal with these things in your life? How do you sort of frame them in a way that you don't sound completely nuts, yet uh, you leave the door open to the idea that maybe these things are mental projections. Maybe we're creating this reality, and uh, that's how reality really works. It ends up being some combination of what's going on externally combined with a manifestation that starts as a, an emotional or intellectual projection from, from an individual. I mean, how do you... How do you deal with people, your friends, who listen to you say these things and go, well, you know, how? what are you, nuts? I've been very fortunate. I had these experiences ever since I was a child. Mm -hmm. And I had a father who was complete and total skeptic, a mother who probably with a different orientation could have been a medium, a spirit medium. Mm. I think that gave me a good balance. So my father was a gentleman and I never laughed at what I was telling him, what his wife was telling him, what his daughter was telling him, because we grew up in a, a haunted house. It had been the old stagecoach stop. And of course there was the legend of the James boys stopping there on their way for the great Northfield, Minnesota raid and so forth. And and so I mean we would hear horses and coaches at night that weren't there and footsteps and I suppose the banging on the wall was the most disconcerting. But I had incorporated all this into a larger picture of reality. It was when I attended school because I really didn't see any little children except my cousins until I went to public school and realized, you know, that not everyone is perceiving these. But whether my cousins believed in what I believed, they believed in me. And that kind of support was extremely crucial, I think, in my childhood. Now, when I entered the profession of teaching, and especially college teaching, it became so uncomfortable then. I mean, that many people were just embarrassed to be on the faculty with me. When right. it became known, when it became known about 1966, the kind of things I was writing. Now, this I've, I've never shared on air before, but I, I think it is, again, uh, and maybe I shouldn't, but um, here goes. Hey, I went on a limb. You jump in, too. Come on. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, our good friend. Brad Steiger, author of Shadow World, True Encounters with Beings from the Dark Side, joins us. And now, Brad, tell us. Well, I know this will get back in a strange way because there are members of the who listen to your program, Paracast, who have contacted me and, and we have some mutual connections. So, okay, take this as it is, not with malice but as, to me, part of the great cosmic joke, okay? Gene, you remember back in 1966, my first big book in UFOs, Strangers from the Sky. Yes, I remember it very well. That shows that my mind has not left me yet. It's on its way. (laughs) We assume, assume, of course, that Jim Mosley is the only senile member of our little group. But... Sorry about that, Jim. Blessings on Jim. Blessings on Jim. Anyway, you remember that it came out. It was the greatest timing in the world. It was right after uh, Dr. Hynek had said there's swamp gas. So UFOs, every paper, everywhere. This was back in 1966. So the book came out just at that time and, of course, you know, just really took off. Well, I was teaching at this very conservative Christian college at the time. And UFOs, UFOs. And, you know, the faculty members just, oh, my gosh, you know, they were embarrassed. At the same time, they had hired a plum, a plum. They had hired a Viennese psychiatrist who had come (laughs) over. He had worked with the UN. He was the master. And this, this was a marvelous coup for this small college to get this incredible Viennese psychiatrist. So as if to mock me at a, a public meeting, he, they asked him, you know, what about this strange member of the faculty who claims that there are UFOs? He then picks up the microphone and says, yeah, I met a UFO being when I was a small boy. He is the one who taught me everything. Now, that huh? That doesn't happen in real life. That only happens in the movie. But this <laughs> happened in real life. The man they thought was going to put me down because he's this great psychiatrist, great authority, says that he spoke to UFO beings in Austria as a young boy, and that's where he got all of his insights. Well, you know what? Maybe he did put you down for the imitation, not for the fact. (laughs) No, that was a pretty good imitation. I think it was really good. The only person who can do nearly as good as you is, of course, my esteemed co-host, Mr. Bietney, or Dr. Bietney. Talking about I will not tolerate this ingenious... So, forget all that. Brad, please, please, please. What did you say when he said this? What was your reaction? My reaction was, I've met a brother. 
we became extremely close friends. And what did he tell you well, about this this being? I mean, what did you? I'm imagining you grilled him about this. I'm hoping you did. Oh, of course, of course. And and then, of course, a number of other people were bold enough to come forward and begin. It's amazing. It's amazing how many people. Well, that, that's what led to the whole star people and the whole star people questionnaire and so forth that we have on our website. But the star people series, I mean, how many people had experiences as small children? I call it the activating incident that occurred when they were right around the age of five or six. Mm -hmm. Then there was a reinforcement around the age of 11 or 12. There was a third reinforcement right around the late teens or early 20s. Oh, I don't want to hear which... this stuff. Oh, I don't want to hear any of this. No, I don't want it because no, you don't want to hear this. Well, this is my life, and I don't. I don't want to hear it. Well, but this is where it gets uncomfortable, right? Because when you when you talk about, and this gets me back to the question from before, Brad. You talk about this stuff, and. You know, this is the kind of thing where it's almost as if you know that if you talk about it, you're going to be ostracized by society, so you don't mm -hmm. talk about it. And you don't mm -hmm. talk about it, right. and it eats at you from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And you go through years of this, and then you start to wonder, and this is where it gets intellectually dangerous. You start to wonder, all right, I have these thoughts, I have these memories, were they put in me essentially to drive me mad? Were they instilled me with the knowledge that I'm going to try not to talk about them? And so the end result is going to be that I'm going to go nuts. Or if I talk about them, then I'm going to be ostracized by conventional society. So I will, in essence, destroy myself that way. Because it's almost as if once you've had these experiences, the outcome is never good. It doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be. I think you see along the way on those three meetings, you are given a mission. And you can rest in some kind of comfort that nearly 40,000 people have filled out our questionnaire at this point. The majority of them are in the helping professions, doctors, nurses. Nurses are probably about the highest. Teachers, police officers, military officers have had these experiences as children. It began for me and I decided to be bold enough to step out and I was lecturing at a major university and after I completed the lecture there were three or four people waiting for me and they were declared themselves as faculty members at this university and I thought okay they're really gonna you know, tear me apart here and they're gonna ridicule me they asked me to go to coffee and I said okay okay get something to eat afterwards have a bite they sat down and they began comparing and we were of varying ages but fairly close I'm talking now and I was probably in my early 30s we were all about the same age and we all had identical childhood now not not in the same place not in the same but excuse me i meant to say childhood experiences they admitted that they had contact at that age with whatever some people see uh, an elf some people see jesus some people see moses some people see some some figure that catches their attention that this is important pay attention and then recently now and i'm talking about decades because you know i'm in my 70s now but recently then people say a ufo being an extraterrestrial that gives them 
and tells them that they have a mission in life. And then about the age of 11 or 12, something happens to them for a time in which they have to withdraw from the normal flow. It becomes an accident. It becomes a serious childhood illness, something that where they have to pull back and become introspective for a time. And that intensifies. It causes them to go within. Well, as we talked, we were just astonished. You know, we come from different states, different areas, different backgrounds, but we had had essentially these same childhood experiences. That encouraged me then to elaborate and expand on a questionnaire that I had originally devised in 1967 to appraise and see if I could find a commonality in people with psychic experiences. Now I just made it mystical experiences because they are, these all are individual mystical experiences. Now I'll address a question that I seem to avoid before. Yes, I have made a decision that Probably, if I were to have remained in teaching, it would have become very uncomfortable for me. Already, some families were saying, I don't want him to teach my student, my, my child. I don't want this. And some people were saying, I don't want him. When this plum, academic plum, declared that he was one of us, it had really, and I was blamed for that. As if somehow, you know, I had got to him and hypnotized him and caused him to say that. <laughs> so, yes, there is, kind of, there is ostracism. It's less now, but then the pendulum is swinging so that everyone feels that they're a ghostbuster. Everyone, I mean, there's a psychic group, I think, in any town over 400 they have there, which is good and bad. It's, well, I can't say it's bad, but it's positive and not so positive in that the whole field, and I stress again and again, you have to study, you have to discipline yourself, you have to train yourself. They read two books and see a special on History Channel and get a tape recorder and some little device that measures <laughs> pressure and they're yeah. ghostbusters. Right. And now they are right. professional investors. You need a particle generator. Got to ask Dan Aykroyd for one of his particle generators. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, our old and dear friend Brad Steiger. Not that old. Brad Steiger, author of many books, including Shadow World, recently reprinted from our friends at Anomalous Books. And by the way, you are talking here about the dark side, and that implies something that's unsavory, unpleasant, and that's the point here. These experiences you've been telling us about I don't know they could necessarily be unpleasant, just experiences. Now, why do you regard them specifically as dark side? Do you say, are you saying they have a negative connotation, must have a negative connotation? What? Thank you. The reason I chose that, the first volume came out, the first printing of this in 2000. It said, spiritual encounters, something about beautiful spiritual encounters that will change your life or, or something like that. But Patrick Ouija said, too, that, you know, this, this isn't really an intensely spiritual book, you know, to, I think it misleads. And I said, I've always felt that subtitle misleads. The reason I want Dark Side is because, guys, this is a cautionary book. This is a cautionary book. It's saying that they might be good, they might be bad. Find out. I mean, throughout time, people have been grossly misled. Ah, an angel of light has appeared. Well, you find out that angel of light is there to mislead you, to misguide you. Test the spirits. Test the entities. Test whatever. Is it really a psychic vampire? Now, again, Ouija board. Of course, the Ouija board, there's nothing. I mean, it's just a board, but it does, and it can open the portal for some people. It can cause them to focus, open up their psyches, and what comes in sometimes is not easily directed out of one's life. And so many people, again, the Ouija boards misleads them. Ah, I am this particular individual. They give predictions. You guys have seen this in the UFO field. Think of some of the contactees that we knew back in the 50s and 60s. How they made predictions, and then this would come true, and they make another prediction, that come true. Finally, they have national attention, and they make a big prediction, and it doesn't come through. They're disgraced. They're humiliated. We never hear from them again. That's part of the game is testing. I think we are in schoolhouse earth. I think we are being tested. Maybe none of these individuals its entities are good or bad. It's how we react. Maybe there are teachers. Maybe just like sometimes the toughest teachers we had were the ones we learned the most and those that were really kind and sweet and fell asleep during class and we thought, oh, this is an easy ride. We didn't learn anything. So it's a cautionary book. That's why Dark Side, that catches the attention that evaluate. 
evaluate. Go slowly into this field. This is not a field where fools dare rush in. Okay, so what you're saying then is that the game is about deception. I mean, that's what I'm hearing, that we it's hard to put any kind of real credence on what these beings, whatever they are, say, because it appears that usually the end result is that it's a lose-lose situation. I And, and this is what I'm finding in my life, that indulging this at, in any way essentially ends up being, and some, is negative. So how do we derive positive value from the experience? Corny as this is going to sound, it, it's practicing right thinking, it's practicing walking in balance on the Earth Mother, it's all the things that we've been taught and all the great mystics and gurus who don't get into denominations, all the mystics of all the quote-unquote religious path are saying the same thing. They're warning us about this and they're telling us a path to take. Now, my experiences, I've learned to... It began very positive, then there are a couple tricksters. I learned to evaluate. I don't always get it right. But I mentioned certainly when they gave me Sherry, I, I give them A-plus for that. Also, my book Divine Fire, which I think is probably one of the, John Keel called it the best UFO contactee book written. I didn't intend it to be a UFO contactee, but this is about people who get spiritual guidance or, or with an intelligence outside themselves. And that came to me, again, in a strange way, some people would say. I was lying in bed. I was beside my late wife who passed away many many years ago before sherry of course and i saw a figure leaning over my wife and making gestures and immediately i mean my four kids are sleeping in be their bedrooms here i am in in my bedroom something this hooded figure is standing over my wife now when you're in my field and you see someone in a hood standing in your bedroom you only think one thing i stood up and at that time i was pumping iron with the best of them i was in really great shape and i lay back to give that intruder that bedroom intruder the best smack in the face I could. Well, of course, the blow was not delivered. I just was like a balloon with the air let out. And I heard this voice, and I started to cry. I started to cry because I was a strong man, and I was made into nothing, a weak, a weak, sobbing blob. And then I heard say a voice say, don't be afraid. We won't hurt you. Next thing I knew, it was morning, and I had this complete outline for a book, Divine Fire, in my mind. That's positive. That's positive. And I knew, I mean, this was a book that gave guidance to so many people for years. I mean, even now I'll go out and someone will, in a lecture, and someone will say, that book changed my life. The incredible thing is I could have blown it because, and there's no way to explain this, just before the book was published, I received a letter from a musician in Chicago. He had come home one day and found a book in his mailbox, and it was called Revelation, the Divine Fire. Hmm. 
he was able to contact me because it was Prentice Hall, and he wrote Prentice Hall. The letter was forwarded. He, on the same night that I had the visitation, he had been visited, and he was told a book to write a book called The Divine Fire. Wow. Now, he was a, he was a musician. I've heard wonderful celestial music all my life, and I've been cursed. I can't play a note. I took saxophone lessons from the time I was 10. I couldn't play a thing. You like play saxophone like Lucille Ball did on I Love Lucy. Uh, I couldn't play a note. And even though I had lessons, I played in the band. I faked it all through band. I just Every time I was called on by the instructor to do a solo, I, I was adjusting my read, so I couldn't. I mean, I, I just had absolute no ability. So what I did was call my editor at Prentice Hall and say, I want to do a book on the contemporary religious experience, spiritual experience. And he said, wow, great. The musician didn't know what to do, just as I, if I had a symphony. But he wrote to me and said, and this, oh, oh. This is before the book came out. I didn't have a copy of the book, but he had a copy of the published book prior to me, and he said this was the same book. If he were a writer, then he would have written the same people he was told to interview, the same path. Now, I have a quote from it. There's a burning fire in my heart, which comes from one of the Old Testament prophets. He had written in an, uh, an original poem, there is a passion, a fire that burns in my heart. I mean, it was... So, again, I think of this great seed cloud of ideas, or I think, you know, that several people... How many other people? How many other people had a visitation from a hooded figure that night? How many people were asked to write the same book? I wonder, exactly. Yeah, I, exactly. I wonder if, if how many books went to publishers called Revelation of the Divine Fire, but you got there first. Otherwise, this would have been one major lawsuit that 50,000 people... No, that's ridiculous. But I understand the concept. I'm kind of being... Yeah, you understand the concept, right. And and these are the things that you can't explain. I mean, you, you can't explain other than to say that this other dimensional world, these other dimensional entities interact with us It's up to us how we uh, appraise that, how we evaluate it, how we either utilize it, and then the danger is those who try to exploit it. Let's bring up one analytical note here, though, in, in what you just described, Brad. How does this intersect with the concept put forward by Carl Jung of the collective unconscious? Because that sort of sounds what we're talking about here. It sounds like multiple people get an inspiration or an idea at the same time. And we've seen this happen in scientific fields. We've certainly seen it in creative fields. What is the intersection with psychology when we're talking about this? Oh, I'm I'm very Jungian in my uh, approach to things, which won't surprise mm-hmm. you at all. So I I accept that very much, and and the uh, collective unconscious and the the zeitgeist and and all of these things I think interact. We are all creative beings. Every one of us we have that aspect of creativity. I think we live in an age now. I'm sorry that blights creativity. All these tests, all these studies, all. The computer, oh, my child is so bright, he's using the computer at two years old. But are they creative? Are they any more intelligent? Or are they just just receivers? Do they just watch? Are we evolving into a species of watchers instead of doers? Well, I think... Yeah, it's almost as a society certainly trains us now to be good consumers. uh, Exactly. 
the mindset of a consumer is very different than the mindset of a producer. And then we can get into a subject that we like to discuss from time to time, and that's the conspiracy aspect. Why? You know, here again, I think we have, and I hate to break it down like this, but, you know, for conversation, I think we have the positive beings, the negative beings, or the beings simply testing us once again. And I think we have those who have learned to exploit this energy. Alchemy, you know, is but this, the practice of ancient wise gurus, so they thought, using angels. The whole idea is to get angels to do your bidding. Well, what kind of angels would come here to make gold, would come here to bring wealth and bring essentially corruption to other people? So we always have the people who have somehow learned to exploit this energy. Let's call it an energy now. We don't know what these entities really look like. As I said, this entity has appeared to me now four times, this hooded being. I never asked for him. If it is a he, it appears to be a he, and I don't think we should. Just like I don't think we should make efforts to contact, quote, unquote, spirits of the dead. I was horrified after the movie The Sixth Sense. How many parents wrote to me and asked, how can I teach my child to see dead people? <laughs> God. That kid was scared to death. Yes, I swear to you. And that's what, And I said, no. I said, you, you don't do that. You don't force a child. I believe you can. I believe you definitely can make that child see dead people, see all kinds of horrible things in his bedroom at night. But you don't do that as a parent. If someone, if a child has mediumistic or psychic abilities, be kind, be understanding, guide him or her cautiously and carefully, but you don't force someone. And, and I think we, we always have those who misunderstand that this creative aspect of us is a gift that we are to value highly to help others as well as ourselves. Listen, we're just about running out of time here, so I wanted to ask you once again, Brad, the book from Brad Steiger, Shadow World, True Encounters with Beings from the Dark Side from Anomalous Books, available to all the usual offenders? <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I appreciate that, giving our, I know you always do, give our website. People can, we have a lot of material that we've added on there. There's a lot of articles under the S files. And we also have techniques. People uh, feel they things have gotten out of hand with their interaction because they thought they could control matters. We do have techniques. We do have exercises. We do have prayers, if you will, which are simply ways of blocking the interaction with these negative beings. They are in the S-Files. Scroll down. We have a lot of other interesting articles there. And, of course, you can see all of our books and pictures of our travels around the world, etc., etc., etc. All right. Well, we very much appreciate, as always, Brad, you coming on the show and talking My about pleasure. strange events, about the interactions that you've had with strange entities or beings over the years and David sharing something that I didn't know before that he kind of didn't tell us and I, I'm probably going to regret it yeah I'm probably going to regret uh, David I, I would really appreciate it if you would you know send me an email and share more and we kind of talk about this a little bit more yeah I, I'd like to do that I, I'm just at a point now where I'm finding that uh, indulging these topics is 
it is having an overall very detrimental effect on my life, and and this well, we, is something we don't want that. We don't want well, that, and it no, I, not be. Well, I, I wonder about that, Brad. I wonder if it's possible to engage the these forces in a way that ultimately does end up providing a, a, a sum that is positive. I, I kind of get the feeling that this is not what the forces want, that the forces want a negative effect. And all I have to do is point at what has happened in the history of society with organized religion, which I've come to believe, that means that it's a belief, I don't know this, but I've come to believe that religion is essentially an artificial influence on humans to get us to engage these negative dynamics because it would appear that's what these beings want from us, that, that it is some form of sustenance. And all one has to do is look at the state of the world today with the fact that we're at the brink of a, truly at the brink of a thermonuclear war because brought on by religion, vanity, and greed. And, and if well, we look I, at that... I won't. I won't disagree with you on that. Yeah. And that's why I emphasize the spiritual aspect and say that these are mystical experience, individual. And Dr. Walter Houston Clark, who has since left us, but he was professor of theology, shared with me a letter that one of my heroes, William James, it's not in varieties of religious experience, but it was in a letter to a friend that James said, the mother sea and fountainhead of all religions lie in the mystical experiences of the individual, taking the word mystical in a very wide sense. All theologies and all ecclesiasticisms are secondary growths superimposed. We have too many of these secondary growths that have squeezed the essential goodness and holiness out of religion. Let's end it there. Thank you so much, Brad Steiger, for joining us on the Paracast. My pleasure, as always. Thanks, Brad. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 